Welcome to Law & More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen & Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. In this episode, we focus on the law relating to children and young people. Our partner, Alice Cabrelli, speaks with barrister Azid Mara, chair of the Hong Kong Committee on Children's Rights, who explains how the city lacks the necessary legislation and robust support systems to properly protect its youngest and most vulnerable residents. Stay tuned. Hi, Zad. Welcome to Law and More. How are you doing? I'm good. Before we go in to discuss children's rights in Hong Kong, perhaps you could just give us a brief background and your key practice areas. I'm born in Hong Kong. I won't tell you how many years ago. And I studied mainly at university in London before I decided to come back to Hong Kong to practice law. There was a brief interlude where I had a very short career as a retailer here in Hong Kong, which I decided really wasn't that nice, not pleasant or interesting. And every day I would go to work, hating my job, I would read the books of Rumpel of the Bailey. And I got the romantic notion in my head that that sounded like a much better career. So I went back to law school in London and then in Los Angeles and came back with the romantic idea that that's what a career at the bar would look like. And my primary practice areas are, I guess, what you would call broadly family practice and public law. But I do a, quite a bit of commercial and civil litigation. Great. Thank you. You also chair the Hong Kong Committee on Children's Rights. Can you tell us more about the committee and what it does? The Hong Kong Committee on Children's Rights is a really long name. It evolved from a committee of another organization. I believe it started as part of Against Child Abuse back in a time when there was a particular concern about children being left at home. The committee started as, off as this little committee dealing with those kinds of issues and trying to push the government to adopt policies to prevent children being exposed to that kind of danger. It, eventually, it morphed into an organization whose principal objective was to get the Hong Kong and the then British government to adopt the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And they were, I think, after five years, very successful in, in getting that done. Since then, our primary objective is the full implementation of the Convention and promoting better child-related policies to give effect to children's rights in Hong Kong. We are kind of a meta-NGO. What we do is we don't really provide direct services Instead, what we do is we, we try to speak for the children's NGO sector. We try to promote children's voice in public policy making, and we try to be a bridge between the policy makers and the public on issues related to children. We are primarily a group of experts in different areas of child protection. So some of us are teachers, educators, psychologists, uh, doctors, uh, and the occasional lawyer, all of us with a different perspective, but uh, generally speaking, it's, uh, we are all uh, experts in our field. And really the idea is who, who better to convey a politically neutral, but also well-considered view on how the government can improve child policy than people who are experts in the field. Now, my role as chairperson is really uh, the person who drew the short straw. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. So I'm the one who signs the checks and 
is responsible sometimes to be the spokesperson. But we, we do have quite a capable group on, in the committee and our executive secretary. She's fantastic. I unfortunately can't speak Chinese or read and write Chinese. So other members of the team do that. I'm also supported by our vice chair, who's Pooja Kapai at Hong Kong University. So talking about long titles, we made a submission back in 2018. I'm going to have to read this out to the Legislatives Council panel on welfare services on child protection, where you set out that child abuse in Hong Kong is endemic and that Hong Kong was failing under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Basic Law and the Hong Kong Bill of Rights to protect children. Can you just briefly set out what led you to present that paper? Can you explain your conclusions? Sure. So actually, I wrote a number of papers for the panel at that time, but I think you're referring to the one on the 19th of January. The background to that is, although there have been fairly few studies about the extent and the forms of child abuse in Hong Kong, we do know from the studies that have been performed that there are tens, if not more than 100,000 incidents of abuse every year. Some of them are more obvious and some of them are hidden. Occasionally, they come to light in the press and unfortunately, still more occasionally, they come to light in the courts. This is everything from physical abuse, which most people would readily understand as child abuse, to sexual abuse, which again, most people understand. But it can also include things like psychological abuse, which unfortunately is probably the most common form of child abuse in Hong Kong. And then it might also include things like neglect. These are generally the the four biggest categories. Neglect is basically when you fail to provide a, a child with what's necessary for that child to be maintained. So rather, unfortunately, incidents in Hong Kong of children not being fed, children being sent out in the middle of winter with very little clothing, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, intentionally. Those are pretty clear examples of neglect. Anyway, in my work as a barrister, but also in my activist hat on, uh, I have seen, unfortunately, a number of very serious cases and a cycle of repeated abuse and very little that the law can do or is doing about that. And the problems are are manifold. On the one hand, you definitely have a resource allocation problem. Uh, I think in the paper, one of the things which I've always found to be the greatest concern is the sheer number of cases each social welfare officer who works on these sorts of cases, our estimate is that each of them is dealing with more than 100 cases each. Now, the practical reality of that is, one, you cannot possibly devote the necessary time to resolving those cases. And the other practical reality is that real cases get ignored simply because there's too much on the plate. And uh, that's driven home to me every time I give a talk to social workers about the law uh, of child abuse and child protection. When I talk to them, particularly about psychological abuse, oftentimes I find the audience laughing. One, because they're, they're shocked to learn that this is a kind of abuse. For example, a very common incident in Hong Kong is you'll see parents or carers belittling children. You're not worth anything. You, sh- you should never have been born because people fail exams or they're late with their homework, this sort of petty thing. Now, that kind of psychological abuse, if done to an adult, is jarring and upsetting, but adults have choices. They can leave the room. They can go and seek help. Children, if they experience that from their carers, it's devastating and it can have long-term impacts. But of course, we also see incidents of sexual and physical abuse, which again, don't get reported 
either because we, we do tend to have a head in the sand attitude in Hong Kong where people just think it's in the neighbor's house. I, I shouldn't see it. I shouldn't report it. We have very few laws protecting those who do report these incidents. L- long story short, we do see that the resource problem causes those who are responsible for, for child protection to ignore cases. But then we also see that because it is so endemic, uh, people become inured to it and they begin to ignore it. In the paper, we suggest a number of things that are necessary to happen. One key change is the need to appoint social workers. Another one is the need to improve access to residential placement and institutional placement. In Hong Kong, there are on average somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 children in institutional care at any one time. That's probably not representative of a number of children who should be in care, but that simply represents the amount of space there is. The consequence is that even in serious cases, the social workers will not send the child into care for a few reasons. One, there are no spaces. So, for example, in the case of Yung Chi Wai, they held what was called an MDCC, a multidisciplinary case conference. They identified that this child was at risk of serious neglect and being exposed to drugs. This was a very young child, I think two or three years old. They agreed that the child should be taken into care, and then they did nothing. They did nothing because they said, there are no spaces, so we'll just wait until there is a space. And I believe it was one or two weeks later, the child ingested, I think it was methamphetamine, and died. Now, that's a case where someone saw the child, someone referred the case, and they tried to do something, and there were no resources. But there are other cases where people choose to look the other way. And we are really reliant on someone to step in when perhaps they've been trained not to. So we encourage more training. That's something that needs to happen. Another case which I would refer you to is the case of KKK. Tragically, it was a case that I worked on right at the beginning of my career. I I was one of the counsel for Mr. KKK. I have no particular loyalty to to him except uh, I did my job and that was a sentencing appeal. But it's an example of what can go right and what can go wrong. This was a case where a father had been serially abusing his young infant daughters. I believe they were seven, eight, and ten in in that age range. And he had been raping them repeatedly. The mother knew, did not report. The children went to the grandmother, and the grandmother said, just try to avoid him. Again, did not report. It was only when one of the children was at school and a teacher noticed the bruises on the child that she put up her hand and said, no, we've got to investigate this. I believe she refused to let the children go home, which was the right thing to do. And there's a good suggestion that the law is there requiring the teacher to do that. But very few people know that is their responsibility and most would have just let the child go home. The case was investigated. The man was charged. Now, the mother and the grandmother, they committed no crime, arguably. They were not charged with any crimes. This is part of the reason why the Law Reform Commission were discussing introducing a a law on exposing children or allowing children to be exposed who are in your care. At the moment, we rely on Section 27 of the Offenses Against the Persons Ordinance, which is really outdated and is not purpose-built. So this was another area where we said really both the criminal law, but also the law on protecting children needs to be reformed. Another area which we've repeatedly said needs to be reformed is there need to be clear guidance in the law to help social workers and other professionals to identify what their obligations are and what the best interests of the child are. So jumping forward to last year, now the Law Reform Commission has recommended that the offences against 
the person ordinance be amended to introduce a new offence of failure to protect. So it's failure to protect a child where the child's death or serious harm results from an unlawful act or neglect. Now that is a positive step forward, but are you hopeful it's going to be introduced? Because we know we've seen in the past amendments which are proposed by the Law Reform Commission relating to children tend to stagnate and nothing actually happens after the recommendation is made. I'm optimistic. Okay. There's no obvious reason to oppose it. I'll be frank with you, with the exception of the family proceedings ordinance uh, bill which was proposed. Generally speaking, the members of LegCo historically have been positive towards law reform for child protection. There are very few constituencies in Hong Kong who want there to be more child abuse. The unfortunate thing is that we don't really have anyone investigating it. One of the things which I mentioned in that letter to the panel is the absence of any effective data collection. You, you just don't have enough data in the public sphere to make the case the way that you'd expect to force the government to, to take action. But I'm optimistic that the Law Reform Commission proposal, which is very narrow and is very, very clear and, and obviously very needed, there wasn't much in the way of opposition to the proposals. So I expect it to go through. That's encouraging. And it was also encouraging that Ambrose Lamb, who is a LegCo member, he seems to be pushing now for something to happen with the Parental Responsibility Bill, which was recommended close to 20 years ago now. It's 2005. That's right. That's right. And still nothing's happening. So hopefully that's a sign forward as well. Yes. Now, my hope is that it will be introduced. The real concern is that we need to have effort in public education to explain the proposals. The notion of parental responsibility, which in substance the courts understand already, in, in a sense, it is there in the jurisprudence. Members of the public don't understand what it would mean in practice. And unfortunately, there was a lot of uh, pushback from some groups who, who feared that this was a, a radical change in the law that would have exposed them or their children to more abuse. And in, in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, talking about statistics, I can't quite remember how I came across it, but last week, the crime statistics were announced and it was quite depressing in terms of child abuse in that there's been a 29% increase. Well, to be fair, there's been a 29% increase in reported, reported cases. cases. If you look at the recent data from against child abuse, I think the suggestion is that that is a, the tip of the iceberg. It's less than 10% of the actual cases. But it is indicative. When the reported number goes up, it, it's not because people are more inclined to report. It's because there are more cases. The total number's increasing. That was the first quarter of 2022. And if we then look at what has happened in Hong Kong with regards to the COVID pandemic, children not going to school, not having access to teachers, do you think that's had a role to play? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when children begin going back to school, that's when you're going to see more cases being reported. And the KKK case, which we talked about a few minutes ago, that illustrates that when you have children being exposed to responsible professionals who are trained, then you're going to have more reported cases. The reality is that, uh, unfortunately, COVID has increased social isolation, especially for children. And it's meant that they are more vulnerable to abuse. And do you think in particular that has had a disproportionate effect on disadvantaged children? Yes, certainly. They have been the most isolated at the moment. Listeners will know playgrounds are shut down. Children are not meeting other children. They're not meeting other parents. They are stuck in isolated positions. That doesn't mean that children aren't leaving their home and aren't going outside to play. They're just playing in back alleys. They're playing 
behind the stairwells. They're not playing in places where there are systems in place to protect them. And that's been the reality of COVID, that those who have fewer options, those who are more vulnerable, those who belong to disadvantaged groups, those who live in places where there are just fewer protections in place, they are the most exposed to the increased risk. And we've also seen in in Hong Kong during the fifth wave, I think it was 10,000 children under the age of 10 had been separated from their parents yes. after testing positive for COVID. Hopefully that seems to have ended now, or mm. they've said, if you want to go with your child, you can. What were your thoughts on that policy? The big concern was already the policy of the Hong Kong Hospitals Authority and all of the hospitals not to allow child separation. That was already the policy. The problem was in implementing the fifth wave changes, or for that matter, I think it really has been from the beginning of COVID. They've been implementing measures and no one has been there to say, how does this conform to best practice? How does this conform with our existing policy about no child separation? And it it has been a bureaucratic feeling, uh, to be frank. The doctors know that it is wrong. It, It has been because policy has been made and no one has checked it and said, how will this affect children? And this underscores the, the other main consistent recommendation, both of LegCo and of civil society. We need a children's commission. There needs to be an independent commission based on statute, willing and resourced to check policies against the interests of children. We do have the commission on children. No, we but, don't. <laughs> but it's not independent. It is not a commission. You can call it a commission if you like. And I'm not criticizing those who are on the commission, whether the independent members or or the government members. It is not a commission. It is a working group within the government, chaired by a senior member of government, staffed by one bureau. Their average meeting time has been once every four months. It has not performed the function, even its terms of reference say it should do. And again, I think it was a hugely positive step to set up what I'm going to call the working group. But it really does not perform the function that the government wish it to perform. And I, I think, to be fair to Carrie Lam, she did foreshadow that. She said this is a step on the way to where we need to go. And what needs to happen now is that we need to take the learning of the last two years and set up an independent commission. We have lots of good examples in other countries and that have produced fantastic results for children. And we can very quickly take up that kind of reform and set up an independent commission. It can happen as soon as the government wants it to happen. We've spoken briefly about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is not directly incorporated into Hong Kong law. Is having a commission on children mandated under the UN Convention? So there's an optional protocol that deals with the commission. So there's nothing per se in the main body of the convention requiring the setup of a commission. But it would be fair to say that is essential to giving effect to the requirements in the convention because there are a number of articles that deal with giving children voice, uh, making sure that policies are given effect to. But at the moment, we, we have no one checking that those policies are given effect. And we've already talked through a number of examples, a number of problems that simply don't get considered. Another area is the requirement that the states collect information. There's supposed to be data collection. There's supposed to be statistical analysis. There's supposed to be checking. But there is no body in the Hong Kong government responsible to do that. That is why an independent commission is so valuable. They would be able to perform those functions. It is simply the best solution for the duties that are set out in the convention.
So as it's not directly incorporated in Hong Kong, how can we ensure compliance with the convention or we simply can't? Well, there needs to be a comprehensive review of our laws and policies. This has been suggested by the Law Reform Commission. It's been suggested by the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. It's been suggested by LegCo. LegCo have repeatedly said we, we should do this. There's not been any decision made by government to refer it for law reform. I think it was three years ago, a member of LegCo did put forward a bill which proposed some law reform for child protection. The government shot down, really for reasons of budget, which when you read them, one struggles to understand why that is the case. But when you read that, you can see that each one of the proposals was addressed to a particular concern raised by the Committee on the Rights of the Child in the UN. And that's just the issues that they've highlighted. But actually, there are many more. And we do think that a commission for children is really the best place to start because you want a holistic review where children have a voice in the commission. You want that to be the starting point. I think, thankfully, not thankfully, but thanks in part to the COVID pandemic and the issues that have arisen in relation to children, I think there is a spotlight on the issue at the moment in Hong Kong. And mm -hmm. hopefully that can be used to sort of push forward. Are you hopeful that there will be change? I think it may be a good moment in Hong Kong now that we have a change of administration at this particular point. And I do hope that John Lee's administration will use this as an opportunity to reflect. I have met before with John Lee to talk about child protection policy, and I was refreshed by his apparent interest in the matter. We talked particularly about forced marriage of young girls, and he did seem to really care about that issue and want to do something about it when he was the chief secretary. Whether or not COVID is a good opportunity, I would say I don't view COVID as a positive. If anything, we can't simply go back to where we were before. We will have to do more to make up for what children have lost in the last two and a half years, because they have lost a lot. They have lost development opportunities, and it will require more than just going back where we were. It, it will require an investment in, in children that will frankly require a commitment both of money, but also a willingness to look at how our systems have worked before. And that will require, and I'm going to use the dangerous word in Hong Kong government, accountability. There has to be some accountability. And that is frankly why an independent commission is necessary rather than simply an intergovernmental one. Otherwise, you have the usual thing of pass the parcel before any decision is made. Evan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on this very important topic. Thank you for your interest. I'm pleased to see people wanting to talk about children's rights. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose Colin & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion news and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.